This is a show about individual experience and personal identity. There may be times when folks use identifying words or phrases that don't feel right to you. That's part of what we're exploring here. Please listen with an open heart. And as always, I welcome your polite, engaged feedback. And I encourage you to continue the conversation in your own life and with your own community. Welcome to Query. Hey, Queeros, Cami here. So excited because this week's guest is Abby Wambach, the actual greatest soccer player of all time. Like truly, more goals scored in international play than any other footballer ever. Holy crap. Um, Plus, I think we're new friends. Um, She has a new book out this week called uh, Wolfpack, and I uh, love it. Super inspirational, but also just like... Dang, um, Abby's somebody I grew up watching, and I love this conversation. Such an honest person, and I think I'm going to try to convince her to go motorcycle jacket shopping with me, just like in some point. If you live in L.A., I will be performing at Dynasty Typewriter on April 13th, and I think there are tickets still available. Everything in New York, 10 shows, all sold out. So if you live in New York, you could also fly to LA and see the show here. Anyway, enjoy the episode. I've been feeling wrong, but I'm still holding on. Darling, I know, I know, I know it's careless. Good morning. Good morning, good morning, good morning. We're actually, it's currently happening. Can you believe it? On this show, I always have folks introduce themselves. Would you introduce yourself? Well, I might be the first guest you've ever had that got a text message from her manager with my own bio for this very moment. <laughs> um, and I just want to make it known to your your followers and your listeners that I am not reading this. This is off the top of my head. From my <laughs> I mean, all right. Yeah, yeah. Let's go. Let's hear uh, Let's hear that yeah. off the cuff so intro. My name, my name is Abby Wambach. You may know me from the time that I played soccer for the United States for many years. It's It felt like centuries. It felt like such a long, fun, amazing career. Um, I've got a couple gold medals. I've got World Cup championship. Um, I've written a couple books now. One is coming out in April. Check it out. It's called Wolfpack. Um, but I think the thing that I'm most proud of is that I am what I call um, – the wife of Glennon Doyle. Um, (laughs) My wife is amazing and she has really brought me back to life in a lot of ways. So that's the thing that I kind of attach myself to the most um, and the thing I'm maybe most proud of. There's so many cool things to discuss in that very off the cuff intro, but I want to start Abby by, um, I got a chance to meet you. We did um, some live shows together for a part of something that's you're called so funny by the way you are so funny like you're brilliant but you're just you're fuck your timing can i swear on this oh yeah of course yeah your timing is so on point and you're funny and i just i feel like we see the world very similarly so um all of your jokes really landed on me oh uh, thank you for saying that you know i don't know what it's like for you i'll say when you started talking i was like oh my God, humiliating. I think she's about to give me a compliment. Like my shoulders changed. I'm just like, oh, like how am I going to survive this? Um, You did it. Yeah, I did it. I got to the other side. I had a lot of fun with those shows that we did. It's like a, it's um, a, it's a group of people. And I was the only stand up on the 
on the dates that we did. And that's like a very fun situation for me to do stand up in because I feel like I actually I actually like that vibe standing up, like getting up in the middle of um, some folks who are funny, but maybe not telling jokes specifically because I feel like I'm like, oh, man, if you liked those witticisms, you're going to love these jokes that have been crafted over years you know <laughs> you know yeah you know? it's like it's like it's a perfect platform for you to just crush Ex- right? that's like, exactly what i'm saying yes because we actually brought a real comic and put a real comic like yourself on stage you know the together tour is what we actually first met doing um it's one of those things that i feel really proud of i've been a part of it for a few years now and my wife is actually the co-creator of it uh and the whole idea was to get women, however you identify yourself, to be celebrated and to celebrate um, from different walks of life, from different uh, art, artists and industries. Uh, so you yourself found yourself to be the, the actual comedian. I try to be funny. My jokes don't land like, like yours do, but um, it was really fun to, to be able to share the stage with you and to see how real comedians actually work. Well, what I, what I also took away was watching... You know, I don't I don't know how I would imagine that for you that is like such a monumental shift. I mean, I, I'm I know that in your well, I don't know. I would imagine I would guess that in like your role as a leader on your team and then also as somebody who is so famous for the sport that they played, that you had to speak in front of people a lot. But was that often live? Like I like I imagine, you know, you're like you have a lot of experience on TV, you have a lot of experience in the spotlight. Do you have a lot of experience speaking in front of large groups of people live? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. That's a good question because I think what I was able to do on the field gave me a platform off the field. And um I think that you probably can understand this that what your craft is, right? What you're good at, what you are probably most known for. In the world of women, that we can't be one-dimensional um, in a lot of ways, and I, I think especially at the early stages of women in sport, you know, 40 years ago, Title IX happened, and um, it was one of those. It's been a long period of time that women have had to continually fight for what we currently now have, um, and so I had, I knew at, at a certain point in my career, I had to develop um, not not a, a speaking. Uh, ability, but the ability to get up and to tell our story. And and I think that's, I like can't, I like, didn't, I never thought of that Abby till this moment till you just said that to me. Yeah. And, and, and honestly, I think that many women probably don't understand that they've been having to do 17 different things to enable them to do their one craft. Right. Um, you know, men don't have that same, uh, pressure or, or responsibility and that is part of the long fight that women are continually having to go on and these these um, requirements that it takes for a woman to actually be successful is outrageous. So the idea for me to get up and speak, my hope is that one day, you know, that, that next player who retires won't need to have to have that same um, skill set that, that covers this wide range because some people are stage fright. Some people are terrified getting up in front. Some people aren't eloquent. Some people don't like that. Some people just want to play their sport or just do comedy, you know, and they should be able to do that. Uh, so it's going to take some more time, I think. But, um, you know, it's not lost on me that I was lucky to be able to get on stage and to have confidence on stage 
and then have a story to tell, like have a message. Um, that's, that's also kind of important. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I think about that in my own job, of course, because I've lived my job, you know, I know the things that I had to do um, that are tangential to my, my specialty. Um, and I'm, and I, and I like it. And I, I think that there are some benefits. But I think you pointing out the, <laughs> like, of course, this is true. And I think I've probably even said this, but the pressure on women in your field to, like, explain the job that they're doing as they do it like that's what that's what it feels like in comedy a lot it sometimes I get this question a little bit less but I don't know five or ten years ago there was every interview would include like what's it like being a woman in comedy and so it's it is completely it's a it's just a lot of energy to have to explain what you're doing as you're doing it and I think that's a little bit what you're talking about too and yeah and it's frustrating because you know, you spend 10 minutes explaining what a woman's place is in comedy or in sport. And, you know, I, I, my future wish for, you know, the next generation of women athletes and women comedians um, is that they don't have to waste any freaking time explaining what it's like to be a woman in comedy or a woman in sport. They're just an athlete or they're just a comedian. Like let's drop stupid pronouns that, Um, people can't understand. We're freaking human beings. We go through the same stuff. We travel, we sacrifice, we train, we blood, sweat, and tears, the exact same. So, um, you know, that's kind of my mission over the rest of my life. I've kind of made a new career for myself, trying to make sure that the people who come behind me don't struggle in the same ways that I did and, and maybe the same ways that you did. Was it always soccer for you? Like you're a little kid. What were you playing as a little kid? I was playing anything, anything that could yeah. get me attention, right? Like, so I was, I, and I still am a, a total attention whore. My, <laughs> my wife says that I'm competing with the 10-year-old, our 10-year-old daughter, <laughs> or who gets, she's like, you're actively trying to get more attention than the child, the youngest child in our family. Like, I don't know what that means, but um, yeah, I was always a, a really great athlete, and um, I think that gave me a sense of confidence, a sense of self and um, an ability that not everybody else had. So it gave me that, I think that other element that some people have inside of them to kind of continue to pursue that, that elusive dream of whether it be playing in the Olympics or whatever, whatever it is, your, your, your end dream goal, like the best thing that could ever happen in, in, in the thing that you love to do. And I grew up in a young in a huge family. I was the youngest of seven. Um, so watching my brothers and sisters play sports, you know, I just kind of always had this knowing that like, oh, I'm going to be able to do that a little bit better than them. Um, Are they athletic? Like, do they, did they, yeah. did they have sport, sport career? Even, even in like, you know, high school, college sort of a thing, did they play sports? Yeah. My sister Beth actually went to Harvard and played basketball at Harvard. Um, she was one of the number one three-point shooters mm. in the country at one point in college um that was a very big claim to fame in my family uh, until of course i went to college and started winning national championships and stuff <laughs> um, eat it beth <laughs> my other sister, yeah my other sister she played soccer at xavier university oh that's where my so, parents went and met no way yeah no for real yeah my parents went to xavier and met there that's amazing yeah. i think I, I i have they ever been to what is it called 
Um, it's not Six Flags. Is it Six Flags? Oh, um, Cedar Point. I don't know. I'm naming places that are in Ohio. I have no idea. Well, it was like a, it was a, a an amusement park that had this really crazy big Kings Island. That's oh, sure. Was. Yes, they've been to Kings Island. Yeah, that uh-huh. is huge. I went there when I visited my sister. It's all I remember about Xavier. Um, But yeah, I came from a really athletic family. My brothers played sports all through uh, high school and then kind of went to work for my dad and went to college and never really pursued it beyond that. So I was lucky. I was lucky to be involved in a family that was very sports-centric and valued sport, um, given that I ended up doing it as a profession. Yeah, what about your um, parents? Did they they have some natural athleticism or any, I mean, I'm imagining like what, what you, what you telling me those facts, um, the context that that's giving me is that you weren't even like the first woman in your family to have, to play at a college level. That's, I mean, that's extremely unusual. And then especially like in the time when you and I were growing up, cause like now, like, I mean, this is still true now. And it right. was more true then. And this is not, right. there's not a huge gap between now and then right. in terms of time. Right. But yeah, well, um, my dad was, my, my dad was a super athlete. Um, he was really quick, fast. I think he ran track and he played football and wrestled. But after high school, went to go work for his father. Um, my, my great grandfather and grandfather had like a, a, a farm stand, like a little farm stand. And then it turned into a farm. So, um, my dad took over that business and never got to kind of see the fruits of his sporting labor. So I think that he lived quite vicariously through his daughters, which um, which is so evident in the way that all of my, my sister Beth and Laura and myself were very independent and were very strong. And my dad will take complete credit for that. <laughs> um, but I have to be honest and kind of give most of the credit to my mom, you know, being a a wife back in the, gosh, I don't even, you know, back in the late 60s, early 70s, um, you know, she was a stay-at-home mom, raised and, and raised us Catholic. Um, so she had, a, she had a, a unique set of value systems in place. And I think one thing that she really broke free from, wanted us to break free from, is this whole idea that we needed to be reliant on a man um, to be happy. Um, you know, and I think that was something all of us really took seriously. My mom always told me, you know, don't, you know, you need to make your own money and you need to put yourself in a position where you're not, you know, serving only somebody else. Like you have to take care of yourself. So I learned those real values. And I think my sister's, my eldest sister is a doctor and now actually doesn't practice anymore and is the mother of six children. And then my next is Laura. She's, she's a, a teacher. So you know, I think my, my parents did a really good job of raising us and they are not without fault. You know, I mean, God love them. They did the very, very best that they could. Um, but I think, you know, they, they really did put inside of, of us girls a strong, a, an idea, a value system of independence. And that really has kind of been with me throughout my life. Do you know where your mom got that <laughs> idea? Like I, I think about, you know, her uh telling you <laughs> to make your own money or something like that that's like a radical concept yeah she got Still it because now. i think she, <laughs> I, yeah i think she was pissed 
Hmm. having to ask my dad for money. You know? <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a very good uh, you know, cause and effect. She worked as hard as he did, right? He would go to work in the morning and come home and she had seven children to, to deal with. And, and a lot of a lot of people out there would say she worked 10 times harder than he did because he wasn't dealing with little humans running around and making a mess of everything. So, you know, I think that I think that anger probably is a huge marker for her that allows her to, to make decisions and, and allowed her to treat us and to parent us and guide us in a, in a kind of a, like put it in your words, radical way. Hmm. Well, this is all like, I, I mean, I can, I can relate to a ton of the stuff that you're saying, you know, I was raised really Catholic. Um, my dad, my dad always wanted to be a singer and then, you know, he's a lawyer. So it's d- definitely, there was a time in, when I lived in Chicago, and that's where he lives, when um, I used to set up shows where my little sister's also a singer, and my family would um, – <laughs> I would throw these, um, like, Italian-themed shows <laughs> where my family would come and be backup singers for me. Uh, as a, And by the way, just so you know, they love this job. <laughs> and, you know, it is it is, like, very – it's a very specific thing. Um, having, you know, in my case, I'll say having like my dad made all these choices to work hard to like further our, um, social standing and like send me to private school, things like that. Like send me to Catholic school, like to, you know, he worked his ass off to like shoveling asphalt to put himself through law school so that he could send me to Catholic school, which like, honestly, pretty sure that wasn't worth it. But, um, and then, you know, so that then I could like turn around and like live the dream that he never got to live. I mean, there's a lot of, I have a lot of feelings about this. Um, yeah. It feels I, so like lot, like there's so much, there was so much lost along the way, hmm. them trying to do right by us. But we have to remember, and this is something I have continually come back to. And, and especially with my relationship with my parents and my mom, you know, it wasn't easy coming out to them. It wasn't easy um, getting them to understand that I was going to do what I wanted to do, whether or not they believed it to be sin or um, whatever it was. Like, I always have to keep reminding myself that our parents are good people and they were they were doing what they felt was best at the time because we have to remind ourselves that, like, it's easy. Like, hindsight is twenty twenty, right? And it's easy to look back on the, the history and the story our, of our lives and, and point out all the things that went wrong and point blame to our parents for putting us in these crazy positions. But at the time, they were really, truly feeling and thinking that um, that it was the best decision for us. Now, could they, if they could go back and change things now, knowing who we've turned into, of course, I think that they probably would make different choices. But they were assuming at the time that we were going to turn into what would be quote unquote, your average normal human being. Right. And, um, and I think that that is really important for parents out there when they're making certain decisions about how to guide their children through their lives is you always have to remember that your kid could be of that. That's however small percent it could, your kid could be trans. Your kid could be bi, your kid could be, uh, homosexual, whatever it is, whatever marginalized group, you have to remember that it's possible. So you never want to have to have your children unlearn stuff that you force them to learn as a child. Yeah, that's real. 
I mean, um, well, when did that, when, when did you, when did that happen for you? When did you come out to your folks? Like just general age range. I was 22. Um, I told my mom, I went, I took her to a Mexican restaurant because I felt like I got to do this in public for some reason. Oh, I did it at the Nordstrom Cafe, but it yeah. wasn't my, my mom asked me, but anyway, yes, public, <laughs> the Nordstrom Cafe, yeah, tuna sandwiches, that. keep going. Um, I, you know, and, and I, I, I came out with it in the most strong way. Like, you know me, you, you know me a little bit. Like, I'm just like, my personality is like, I am basically all or nothing. So I wasn't going to like whimper into the conversation. I didn't want her to have any reason to doubt what I was saying. So I basically said to her, mom, I need to tell you something. I am a lesbian. So I used the strongest word that you can use that makes it, you know, undeniable to hear. And she, of course, you know, she, she did her very best under the circumstances. I think my mom has had known for a long time, um, but her belief system made it harder for her to hear those words, right? So she told me a few times, like, no, you're not. No, you're not. No, you're not. Um, and, you know, 10 years later, I had to come out again and remind her I, I still am a lesbian, you know, Ma. Um, and it was kind of our, our, our little secret that we, we didn't share with the rest of the family. Although I told my brothers and sisters and they were like, yeah, cool. We've known forever. Right. <laughs> you know? Um, so yeah, that was, that was when I was 22. And then I think maybe when I was 29, like seven or eight years later, I had to, you know, remind her that this was still the case and things had not changed. And this was my life. When 22, what was going on in your, in the rest of your life at that time? Like, um, I'm trying to timestamp, like, were you out of, what was going, yeah, what was going on yeah, for you? I had just left college <clears throat> to enter into the uh, women's professional soccer league. It was the, it was then called the WSA. And there's been a few iterations since, um, in 2003 is when I started to get more um, in, invitations to play on the national team. In 2004, 2003, 2004, I was mostly a mainstay on the on the national team. So once the national team stuff started to happen, then it was real easy to sweep um, my sexuality under the rug and not talk about it um, because I had this other massive focal point that I, that. I could continue to relate with my parents around. Um, wow, that's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, and if I were to be able to go back in time, I would do things differently because, you know, that was that was also me not wanting to actually deal with the relationship that I was trying to cultivate with my parents. And so it's taken, you know, 15 or 20 years to actually have these hard conversations. Um, and, you know, being brought up Catholic, I was, and, and I've, I've just figured this out. Um, my struggle was, I felt like at the time I was having to decide between my mom and God or myself. Um, and you know, up until six months ago, I'm almost 39. So up until six months ago, I had this revelation like, Oh, actually God is not separate than me. And um, God is not separate than my mom and God is not the church, right? So I had been feeling like 
um, this 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 guilt, you know, this Catholic guilt that we're all made to fear and and, and feel less than and shame about about myself and I was just getting it really mixed up. So I'm glad that I cleared that up and it's actually allowed me to have um, a little bit of healing with my relationship with my mom because, you know, she's getting older and I don't want to have things that are left unsaid. So, you know, for all of your listeners, having the hard conversations now um, will, first of all, save the conversation for, you know, you're just saving the conversation for later or you, or worst case scenario, you won't ever have it. And then, um, you know, God knows what happens after that. So have the hard conversations with your parents or your family now um, and get them to, to see you and get them to, to hear what you want to say um, because you're going to have to say it eventually. Might as well just get it over with, eat the frog. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a particular set of circumstances, though, that to what you're talking about. I was a little younger. I was, um, but not much. I was 19. But a lot of things were different between what you're describing and my situation. I was, you know, still in college that my folks were helping me pay for. And um, it was a Catholic college. And so I was still getting messaging there. Um, like you couldn't you couldn't come out. You could be kicked out of school. And um, <clears throat> so like for me, that actually, to your point, um, it did sort of force me to have – well, first I'll say, I'll say this. Sometimes it's just like straight up not safe to have some of these conversations. But you're talking about when it's safe yeah. but you're yeah, just making a choice or whatever. And of I course. get that. I think because of the specifics of what I'm talking about, I did have to have those conversations like very – in a very um, focused way just because um, like I wasn't – I didn't have any, I didn't have this other thing going on or like a job or um, something else that was pulling me in a different direction. I had to just like kind of work it out with them over, over, you know, from like 19 to 25. Um, really and you were in a controlled environment too, because mm -hmm. you were being, you were asking them for their resources to go to, to this crazy college that's not allowing you to actually be yourself because of their belief system. So it's it, it, and I understand every situation is very different. Obviously, um, safety is the number one priority, but yeah, um, that's hard. And and um, I'm glad that you had those conversations. You know. Yeah, I mean, I have com I have a lot of compassion for you because like the pressure cooker of all of that kind of just you know you're right. Like it did. Like by the time I was 25, I was living back in Chicago and dating a uh, a woman that they liked, and it was just like okay, now we you have to get over this now. Like it was just, it was so, it was such a finite amount of time because it was so big. And I'm imagining like in your case, um, yeah, that's a, that's a long time to sort of carry that, um, that like dance that you're doing where, cause I certainly did that during that time, you know, like there was a, you know, I went home for Thanksgiving and didn't bring my partner because, or like brought somebody in. She was my friend, you know, like I did that all, but it was all just very condensed. And um, I certainly know how stressful that is to try to figure out like sort of who can hear what about your life, like who in your life can hear what things about your life. That compartmentalization is, um, it's, it's so isolating. And, um, and I, I just have a lot of compassion for what I'm assuming you must have been going through at that time, which is a lot yeah. of a lot of like redirecting towards <laughs> soccer or whatever. Or well, yeah. and, uh, you, know. you know, I think that that also added a layer of pressure to the whole thing because I started to get a little bit more famous. 
my name was a little bit more out there. And so, you know, my mom at one point just begged me not to come out publicly. Um, you know, and it's this whole idea of perception and the way that the outside world perceives your family and the way that I was raised and how that's going to now reflect on my parents. So I, and I have compassion for my mom also, but here's the thing, you know, it became this pressure cooker and that kind of led me down a really difficult path towards the end of my career. And a lot of things were kind of coming to, um, ahead for me and I was really struggling with alcohol and prescription pills um, and and so that was the other side of it where I was placating and wanting my mom's security and acceptance um, while all the while not listening to my own needs uh, and so I went the opposite direction and started making bad choices for my personal life for my personal body um, and so I think that there is, there has to be the balance of, and protection, the, there has to be protection in, in place for you and yourself that um, is, is long-term, right? Because, yeah. Uh, as soon as I started to struggle, you know, as soon as I actually started struggling and then, you know, when, when the shit actually hit the fan, I got a DUI, like my life completely changed because I got sober and um, I was able to actually have these hard conversations. Um, I was actually able to create boundaries and create a life for myself that felt really good because of my gayness, not in spite mm -hmm. of my, and I think that I needed to get to that point. Unfortunately, um, I needed to get so low that I, I just had nothing else but needy, but the, the, the requirement of accepting who I was and accepting of what the life I wanted and then go out and, and, and create it. So, you know, as much as I would love to sit here and blame my parents for every little thing that ever went wrong in my life, like I am here now um, because of them, right? Like some of that struggle, though it was hard and though it was very real, has allowed me to get stronger in ways that I wouldn't have. Right. And so it's not for, it's not all for not. Right. Like, and I, I understand too, that everybody's story is different and everybody's pain is different and everybody's reaction to it is different. But for me, I want to be the narrator of my story. And in order to do that, I have to take control of all the aspects of it. And I don't want to, I don't want to blame. I don't want to give out any of the power that I've been able to curate for myself and create for myself. So I want to take that on myself and um, I guess be the strongest dyke I can be. <laughs> yes, be the strongest dyke you can be. You know, every one thing that I feel, I feel like so often, I mean, even still now, the messaging, certainly when I was coming out, even still now, the messaging of like, but why do you have to be out or why do you have to identify uh, like you're wearing button downs all the time as like something that's queer or like, why do you have to tell me about your life? You know, like that kind of a thing. I still feel like I hear that. I feel like I've heard that the entire time, you know, it relates to you trying to bottle things up and, and it, I, th it is, the premise is flawed because it's, it's not um, a choice. You know, I don't feel like it's a choice, not, sexuality, I'm specifically talking about whether or not to tell people what's 
real in your life. I feel like we still kind of talk about that as if it's like, you know, um, could should you come out or should you identify the things in your life that are part of queer culture or should you um, talk about what you like about being gay or anything like that. And, you know, that's a lot coming from like a, it's to keep us afraid and like keep us feeling marginalized often, you know, but I think another part of it is just like that for a long time, I also think queer folks have, have accepted that we could do this or that. And I, I just feel like for long-term health, it's not so much a choice. And that doesn't mean like, you know, everyone in your life has to know at this certain time in this certain way. Um, it just means that, that like, I, I don't, I don't think it's the best idea for anybody to walk through their life being unknown by the people that they love yeah. and that love them. Well, I think self-expression, I think you're talking about self-expression, right? And what makes people comfortable is when they are able to express themselves in this little box that they live in or in this little community that they live in. And they see somebody who lives across the street, who looks like them, who talks like them, who drives the same car as them, who their kids go to the same school. That is a patriarchal system that has been set up for all the rest of us people to live by these like unknown codes of conduct, these silent rules that we've been operating under. And I think for the most part, right, people just do it. Like you, you ride, you drive your car on the right side of the road. It's law. It's understood. And we have these invisible codes of conduct culture, right, that either keep us feeling safe or unsafe. And I think that self-expression is independent of each other. Every single person has a different reason or desire or way to create uh, who they are as an identity, as a human, as a family, as a community, as a country. And what the patriarchy wants us to do, right, is they need to keep the, the, the people that they are governing and they are in power over afraid of each other. So they've created these boxes and these labels that make it easier to quote unquote understand each other and to connect to each other. But actually what they are are barriers to keep us afraid of each other and to keep us apart. Because the number one thing for power, fewer, right, white men, the fewer in power to stay in power is to keep the people that they are in power over afraid of each other. And I think that that's where this whole conversation gets, I mean, first of all, it's mm. fascinating to me. Um, second of all, it's not easy. Um, and, and by the way, there's so many different marginalized groups that are being made to be afraid of each other, right? Oh, I'm a part of this church, so I can't be friends with any, any homosexuals. Or I'm a part of this church and I can't. Um, and, and so you know, my point being is self-expression is such a beautiful thing. But the culture that we live in is the thing that inhibits people from actually expressing who they are because we might not have actual English words to define who one human being is because we're multitudes, right? Um, and so my wife, Glenn and I, we talk about this all the time. Like we are, we are fluid. Like 
you know, we look at the political system right now and it's just gross. Like, obviously I am not anywhere near the Republican side, but like, if you actually look at like what Democrats stand for right now, that doesn't feel very like enticing, though I'm still going to vote for them. It just feels gross, like all of it. And so I've been made to fear not attaching myself to this Democratic Party because then all of my rights will go out the window. But the truth is we have to get a little bit more comfortable in attaching ourselves to things that are not finite, that are not binary. Uh, because I think as we evolve as a species, we are going to find out that none of that shit fucking matters and it never has and it never will. It's just a, it's a bullshit concept that has been made up by, by white men to keep the rest of us in check. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing. And wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! Okay, can I ask you a follow-up question that's more personal on what you're talking about? Yeah. Um, so, I think the way that you present, you know, the haircut that you have and, like, the clothes that you wear, um, first of all, you look awesome. Thank you. Uh, second so of all, you. <clears throat> um, you know, it's, uh, it's still, I I lost you. oh yeah, Sorry. it's no, it's, it's still, um, like your vibe of, I mean, what do you, what would you call your haircut? It's like, it's like kind of shaved on the sides. Then there's yeah. like a, there's it's a side shave with a skunk. Blonde. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, like. That's still an unusual look. Um, and it, it also is like there's people that have been claiming or like wearing or trying on you know, masculinity, whatever words we want to use. Um, and I'm wondering if that's like always been comfortable for you, like having the haircut that you have or like wearing a suit to an awards show or uh, like a motorcycle jacket when you're on stage in front of folks. Has that always been something that felt comfy well interestingly enough i think that i i'll be super honest like it it wasn't i i didn't start doing it until i i felt actually comfortable in my skin and what that means for me is i stopped trying to please people on the outside and started trying to please myself um which is a very foreign concept for a lot of women out there yeah like trying to match your insides with the way that you look on the outside is a foreign concept for human beings, right? They see somebody wearing what, what um, they think they should be wearing and then they try to replicate it. Right. So, so that's an external motivator. So I've been doing a lot of work, especially over the last, I guess it must be nine to 10 years um, because, you know, being the captain of the women's national team for many years, 
I also felt a massive responsibility to not be the quote unquote stereotypical lesbian. I was going to ask that. I mean, I remember what your hair used to look like, you know, yeah. and like the um, like the rap uh, yep. tape or whatever the heck that's called that you like wore in your hair. That's like a very uh, soccery thing and also is like, um, I mean, I you know, of course, I played sports, too. I didn't play sports the to the extent that you did, the messaging that I got was like, okay, play sports, but like, don't be gay about it. And I, I can't imagine that that stopped as you continued to have more eyeballs on you. Like if I was getting that messaging in high school, I can't imagine that like suddenly that gets less. I would only imagine that would get more. Well, Um, the irony with me as it relates to more eyeballs, more fame, more, you know, more responsibility, captain, I just didn't want the rest of the world to think that our entire team was gay. Yeah. That was something because I because I knew that there are millions of kids out there who didn't, you know, identify in the same way that I did that would look at the the team and see the leading goal scorer and maybe the most famous player on the team and not be able to see themselves in me, right? I got that. But then you know, Megan Rapino came on the scene and all these other young kids who just like didn't really care as much as, as I did about pleasing everybody else out there. Um, and we had enough straight players that, that were making a name for themselves. Um, and as soon as I actually started to accept who I was uh, inside and, and not trying to please the people on the outside, I started to wear whatever the hell I wanted to wear. Um, you know, living in LA for seven years helped with that because I was just in board shorts um, and, and sandals the whole time. Um, but then, you know, now my style or whatever you want to call it has evolved in a way that, you know, I do a lot of speaking engagements for businesses and corporate in the corporate world. Um, and they're, they're like, this is business. You know, this is the business attire situation. And I'm like, all right, well, I'm going to wear whatever the hell I want to wear. Like I'll wear a nice cool pair of shoes and a nice watch. And like, that's me like excessively dressed up. (laughs) (laughs) It's, I mean, certainly there are no uh, rules on what is uh, business attire. If you're somebody who wears like the kind of casual attire that you and I wear. Certainly that is very difficult to figure out um, and and difficult to find. You have to have like, you know, the, the ideal situation is like that you have the suit made and then like how expensive is that and how time consuming and all these things is super complicated. I also, you know, I just want to say that just on the point, just on that very small point that you just made, um, you know, you were thinking like, I don't want everybody to think that I don't want people to think everybody on the team is, is gay, but the, the opposite side of that is that we are fine with the idea that everybody would that people would think everybody on the team is straight. I know. I'm. It makes me feel like I'm so poisoned. We're all so poisoned yes. in our own shame of and guilt of stuff that you know. I mean, Glennon is all the days trying to remind me or 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 point out like things that don't really ring true that are still of the old thought process of the, the patriarchy. And it's like, these are things, and this is something that is so important. It's why I wrote this book. Um, it's because we are numb to, in believing some of the things we, we believe, like we don't even understand that wearing, um, wearing certain clothes as a kid. Like for me, when my mom put me in a dress to go to church or whatever it was, she used to dress me in Talbot's clothing. 
Uh, <laughs> of course, I wore that shit. Yeah. Go ahead. Like, Go ahead. I mean, it was absurd. And yeah. I just remember, like, I felt like I was literally holding my breath till the moment I could unzip it and get it off of my body, you know? Um, and did I die? No, but maybe like a little bit inside, like maybe yeah. a part of me, um, you know, you, you swallow enough poison, you're going to get sick. And I think that that is our culture. I think that the way that we all interact with the outside world, you know, we are all drinking in a certain amount of poison, especially all of the little girls out there and the messages they see about what it means to be, however they identify a woman, a man, whatever it is, you know, like we try to point our kids to the things that are obnoxiously patriarchal, right? Whether it be like a Hooters commercial, mm -hmm. we like stop it. And we like point to it and we say, what do you guys see? And they say, we see a lot of boobs and we see women trying to sell chicken wings. And we are like, okay, what are women's bodies for? And they're like, they're for running and playing and thinking and studying and like helping each other. And we're like, okay, what are they not? Right. So like we are having, and also by the way, parenting is a perfect excuse to unlearn some of this shit that we've been taught. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. I mean, you know what? That makes sense to me. It makes that, that gives me a lot of, because I read the, because I read, I read the book, I read Wolfpack and, um, you know, my, my thought was like, first of all, I was like, yeah, absolutely. Like everything in there is like, is uh so helpful and like right on the money and like you know and then I also and I think maybe part of this is like just because of my job I read that book and I was like I wonder how much of this is like I don't know if you've gotten I don't know if you think about it like this but I often think about the work that I make it's like literally the work I needed to see and it, and I didn't see yeah. it out there and then like now I'm you know 37 and I make this work and it's like it's 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 for you you know it's like for collect the collective you but it's like for the the sad little me and like that is it's like so I have so much hope there because oh my god I've I've put myself in the position where I can do that and then I have like I also have like so much kind of like sadness and I think that's okay too you know like sadness for that little cami that I'm like oh man kid like I wish you know I wish I wish you didn't have to you know write this book at at the age that I am now or write this um uh stand-up set now because I I wish that this had existed for you you know and I don't know if you felt that way at all in writing that like the of course, you of know. course. I mean, it's like you, you become the teacher you wish you yeah. had. You yeah. become the parent that you wish you had. Yeah. Um, you become the backbone that you wish you had, you know, and I think that, that that is life, right? It gives us perspective. It gives us a deeper wisdom and understanding of, like, why we did what we did. And, you know, a lot of this stuff that I write about in Wolfpack, um, they really are just basic rules that we all operate. Like, like every person, every woman out there can understand the moment when they were the only woman in the room, right? Whether it be at work or somewhere else. And, and, and they may have something to say, like they, they felt like this urge to talk, but then they looked around and they were like, Oh, I'm the only woman. I'm just going to stay quiet. Right. Or when you finally get the promotion or you get the raise and like the only emotion that you allow yourself to feel as a woman is just grateful right? Like, no, like we need to learn that it is okay for a human being, regardless of what gender you are, how you identify, that 
when something good happens, like be grateful. And you also get to continue demanding more, you know, like sure. that's a freaking birthright. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I also would say like for queer folks, um, also, we don't always have, you know, we have to make choices to put ourselves in places where we are, you know, in the majority. Like there are certainly like shows or bars or, you know, whatever meetup spots that you can, a certain coffee shop. Um, but that situation that you just described is just as much or perhaps even more prevalent for queer folks because like, I mean, I think we're seeing with younger generations that like the number of people that openly identify as, is shifting, but you know, sometimes you're, you literally are the only person, not just in this room, but like in the office or whatever, because of whatever, like our geographic isolation. Um, or you might be the only queer person that's like also a person of color, you know, or wh whatever it is, the, the, um, many things that are true for you and identities that you carry that like, you know, might, might continue to pile on reasons to shut up or whatever. So I definitely <laughs> think there's also a lot of queerness in what you're speaking about. Of course, you know, and, and, and that is why I think this book is so revolutionary because, it can, it, you can attach yourself, any marginalized group can attach themselves to all of these, these um, philosophies of thought because, you know, at the end of the day, like, there are so many people out there that have been persecuted or have suffered because of their, um, their marginalization, whether it be their blackness or their, their queerness or, their gender or their sexuality, like whatever it is you have been persecuted from for being a person. Like, like I, I have to like sometimes actually break it down, like, and think about each person as like a little bitty, little bitty baby, baby. I'm like, how could you mistreat this, this little baby? How can you, how can you say mean things to this baby? How can you like, that's how, that's for me whenever, you know, I have ragey moments against um, certain people in our government. I like, I don't want to be that anger. I don't want to be that rage, right? So, you know, I, I want to be given the same respect uh, as I'm requesting from other people. And I think empathy is the way through. We have to find ways to build bridges. And I know for some people, um, their lives have taken them in many different ways um, with suffering and pain. But I think that the only way we can go through this is by reclaiming our power um, as people and giving each other the same kind of power uh, individually. Um, and, and it's hard, like building bridges is not an easy thing. Otherwise everybody would do it and the world would be fine. Oh yeah, of course. <laughs> I mean, I, I think even just anger, you know, anger is like real difficult to, um, to figure out how to deal with because I, th because there, there are, you know, there's like small anger and then there's like, you know, big anger. I mean, I, I, f I find that myself sometimes I'm, um, I'm just in this place right now where I am wondering if everybody gets to have a bridge built to them. And that's just a, you know, that's a real honest place, 
you know, analysis of the place that I'm in where like I've, I just really have felt in the last couple of years, like I've been working to that end for a long time. And now I'm like, eh, you have to, you know, I have been like putting in a lot of bridge work. And so like, I really expect like a lot more bridge work on your end than I, than I think you've been delivering. And it's, uh, but you know, that doesn't, that doesn't, um, you can't control other people. Exactly. So, so you build so, the bridge, and you know. it's up to them if they cross it. Right? Sure, absolutely. Also, it's up but to them if they cross it. But here's the thing: like, you also have non-negotiables. Like, mm, we're yeah. talking about sure. people who cross boundaries that are not acceptable for anybody to come to your island for any kind of bridge you're trying to span across to any any person out there, right? So, like, your non-negotiables are your your boundaries, and and you hold on to them. Um, and, and if somebody can make it across your bridge, like more power to them for me, I think I'm amazing. I, I'm sure, cool. you know, like you're amazing. So if like, you don't want to come be and hang out with me on my Island, like I don't really care. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Cool. Fair enough. Oh man. I, okay. This is, this is a part that I like absolutely want to ask you. And, um, I'm just looking that we have about 10 minutes left, so I'm going to redirect the, the conversation in this area. Ready? I wonder if people ask you about this. You'll have to tell me. Okay, Abby, um, like uh, highest goal scorer of any human ever in international play. True? <laughs> that is true, yes. Okay. So where this game is going. This like, is a, like a real uh, like a real goat. Um, and uh, you are in your late 30s, as you've said. How does your body feel? <laughs> oh, yeah. So do people ask you that, first of all? <laughs> yeah, well, they do, actually, because every person on the planet Earth thinks I'm the most fit person on the Earth. Because, <laughs> uh, no, I feel like you used record. your body like you used your body hard and you were so good and you and you and it was for a long time. Yeah. It How was do you for feel 30, now? <laughs> it was 30 years. And, and truthfully, I'll give you like a little bit of a rundown. I, I retired at the end of 2015 and, um, you know, your listeners may not know this about me. Fitness was not my favorite. So having to do all of that to stay fit and to stay at the top of my game for so many years was literally and figuratively just exhausting. I was just so freaking over it. I didn't want to do another sprint. I didn't want to lift another weight. Um, so I didn't for two years. I became very sedentary. I gained some pounds. I will gladly admit that. Um, I scared myself in, 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 the, in the bathroom naked a few times. Like, what is that thing on your ass? Like, what is cellulite? Hi, where did you come from? Um, and, and that was something that I actually just spiritually needed because like, like I was saying earlier, like this external and internal motivation, um, what was once an internal motivation to be the fittest, strongest and fastest uh, quickly became um, an external fear of right. Not making the team and losing my position and not scoring as many goals. So I've actually been doing over the last six months, I started working out again, six months ago, and I've been working relentlessly on trying to figure out how to internally motivate myself um, as opposed to this this fear, this external motivator that kept me on the team for so many years. 
Um, and that has been really hard, but my body really needed a break. I mean, I have a, a, a titanium rod in my shin. I've broken my nose and my orbit and toes, countless toenails lost, um, shoulder issues. I tore a ligament in my knee, hamstring issues. I mean, countless ankle sprains. So my body actually needed to actually go into a little bit of a hibernation. Um, so long story short, my body felt like shit. And um, I, I let my body off the hook for a couple of years. Um, and I needed that. I really needed like that spiritual disengagement from my actual body. Um, and then six months ago, I just started running. I mean, literally like Forrest Gump running, just like running and not suffering. Because, you know, for 30 years as a pro athlete, you kind of get comfortable in that what we call the red zone, which is like your top heart rate zone. Um, and, and that is the period of which your body actually starts to shut down. So it develops lactic acid and it slows your, your, your body down. And when you get into that red zone, not to get too boring and scientific on you, when you get into your, to the red zone, it's basically like you want to kill yourself. Like, and pardon that expression, because I know that there are a lot of mental health people out there, but that, that is essentially what you feel like you, you want to stop everything and you, you no longer want to exist. Um, and so having a 30 long, 30 year long career in that perpetual state of always pushing your body to that max was something that I got over really quick. So I'm just going on these long, yeah. easy Forrest Gump <laughs> runs. That's what I'm doing now. Well, I mean, I, wow. Well, first of all, I think, I mean, maybe you know this, but people who didn't have your experience in your career, I think we're, we're also dealing with the equation that you just spoke about, which is like the balance between what are you doing for other people or what are you doing for, you know, the way you look or what are you doing f for to compete in whatever arena versus like what are you doing for yourself, specifically as it relates to our bodies. So I think like you have your, your experience is like so specific but you're also like, you know, not a weirdo and everybody else around you, I think could probably relate to this concept of like trying to figure out, um, you know, what's the stuff that actually makes you feel good. And, um, I also, I also think good, good on you. Um, be because another thing that was happening, you're, you said you're like, look in the mirror, you're like, what is that? I mean, what that was is probably like what your body kind of should <laughs> look like at right. you know because of how bodies change over time but the kind of career you had you were arresting your own development you know um you were you were like freezing yourself in time and so i you know it's like a real encino man moment where you're just <laughs> like waking up and yeah. uh and everything's body dysmorphia. Body catching dysmorphia up with you like a real thing. totally yeah but um you know that stuff everything that's that's happening is like is uh you were using your body like a different machine than most people do and um i'm really i'm really happy for you that you took some time and space to to figure out how you wanted to use the machine that you have now yeah and it's a work in progress you know like sure food, food used to be servicing my body as fuel to be able to go and suffer um and now i haven't made the switch 
that I'm not supposed to eat so many fueling calories, right? So <sighs> teaching my body that I don't require as many calories because I'm not expending as many calories. I mean, you know, people wouldn't ever think this about me, but I really struggle with, with food control. And it's like, oh, well, where does this come from? It's like, oh, the time that it wasn't, I didn't live in a, in a chaotic experience in my childhood was at the dinner table. And so I try to recreate that experience every single time I eat. And so I go completely numb. I stop thinking. And so I always overconsume. And then that was fine when I was burning three to four to 5,000 calories a day. But now that I'm probably burning two to 3,000 calories a day, what, depending on if I work out, you know, like these are things that, that I'm struggling with. So like if you're struggling with the way you look or the way that you're, you're consuming over or you're over consuming or you're, you're on your phone too much, like these are real like life things that every person, no matter how great you think I am, like, I'm struggling <laughs> with much. Yeah. Yes, friend. Yes. I was a big jock. Like, I mean, that's again, really different results. Um, I was actually never asked to play for the national team, much to my surprise. I mean, I also wasn't good at soccer, um, but uh, you know, I was I was a hardcore athlete at a time in my life where that meant that I could hide disordered eating in that space. You know, where I could um, like do an equation that you know isn't true for the rest of your life. You're not always on. 5,000 teams at once, you're not always a teenager, you're not always, um, like, you don't actually always feel good eating only low-fat twist cones from McDonald's. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> yeah, you grow up and, and you have to constantly reorient and um, uncover layers. And um, I'm just glad to hear you're, like, doing so much solid work. Like, congratulations to you. I feel like... I feel I like what, what you're doing in retirement is like, it's, um, I mean, it's more than you need to be doing for like <laughs> the things you've already done, but for a person who's going to live like the rest of their life as if they have a rest of their life, you know, I'm really happy for you that you're like doing all this work. Well, one thing that actually allowed me the space to see a sober life is that my wife took me aside. We had known each other for 10 minutes and um, she wrote me this email and basically in the email, she just said, look, like the world actually needs you and needs you in your highest, best, most efficient self. Right. And this isn't like a moral thing. It's not like you were bad. And so now you have to be good. It's like the world like needs people like you, Abby. And, I actually heard that for the first time. Like if we actually want things to change and, and, and we want more beauty, then we have to actually go out and do it, you know, and be it. And, um, and I think that that goes into just like always remembering that we're continually recreating ourselves every day, every, every week, every month, every year. And it's like children, like as soon as you start to get into rhythm with the, your kids, like they change, like, all of a sudden they're a different, a different person and you've got to like be agile and, and move so that you can serve them in the best possible way. And the same, the same grace needs to be given to each human being. Like we're always changing. And um, yeah, so I'm, I'm still working on it. 
and I'm sure I'll forever be <laughs> Well, that's a perfect place to leave it. And I want to just ask you before I send you back into your day, Abby Wabach, to shout out a Quiro. Can you uh, let our listeners know of a person, place, or, or thing that like made you feel confident being who you are today? Yeah. Actually, it's somebody who I've, I've just recently met over the last six months. His name is Sandy Gould, and he is an executive for Verizon Media. Um, I run a leadership program inside of Verizon Media, and he is a queer fellow and somebody who is living kind of an, an abnormal life, right? In, in our minds, like in our, in our like brainwashed minds, like gay folks don't make it to the C-suite level, right? Mm-hmm. Don't make it to executive level of big corporations. Um, and this beautiful man, you know, he has just been such an inspiration, such a leader. Um, and, you know, he, he talks the talk and he walks the walk. He's brilliant and he's beautiful. And he has really um, not only helped me personally, but the way that he walks in the world is helping all gay people everywhere. And he's not, that's not his mission. It's not why he's doing it. He, it's just who he is. Uh, and I really, I really admire him for that. Well, thanks, Abby. It was so awesome talking to you. Thank you for making yeah, the time. The yeah, we had a great time. <laughs>